Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to each of you, our Supply Chain Now Global family, wherever this may find you. This is your friend Scott Luton, and I'm very pleased to share with you that we have a special crossover episode today on Supply Chain Now, as we're going to be featuring a couple of intriguing stories from our popular podcast, This Week in Business History. Up first, you're going to hear about one of the pioneers of the audiobook industry, which I believe helped create the podcast industry. And secondly, you'll hear about the formation of a fashion icon. In fact, you might be wearing a pair of their products right now as you sit and listen to this. On behalf of my friend and co-host Kelly Barner, we both invite you to check out two stories today. Dewey Hecht and the Levi Strauss and Company story. And if you like these stories that are found at the intersection of business and history, be sure to find and subscribe to This Week in Business History wherever you get your podcast. Hey, stay tuned, and we hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week. Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hello and thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Scott Luton, and welcome to today's edition of This Week in business history for May 10th, 2022. Hope this finds you well and glad to have you with us here today. Now our episode today is focused on an intriguing character and an individual, a trailblazer in many ways, especially in the world of audiobooks, which is an exploding industry. So stay tuned as we tackle Dewey Hecht, the intriguing mind behind books on tape. And hey, before we move forward, be sure to take a moment to offer a review of our podcast and subscribe so you don't miss stories like this one day. So do that, uh, the review and the subscription, wherever you get your podcast from. And again, as always, thank you for your support and let's dive right in. The Duval Dewey Hecht, who speaks to us in interviews and through the recollections of his friends and family, well, he was a man who, above all, revered intellectual enrichment. When you listen to him quietly respond to an interviewer's questions, politely acknowledge intrusions, and speak with precise detail about events that occurred decades earlier, it becomes easy to imagine him engaged in his favorite hobby, his long and slender frame rowing a boat through a clear stretch of water. He must have looked quite graceful, soaring through the water on a cloudy but rainless spring day. Now I say this not because I've ever seen it, 
but because he was a two-time Olympic rower who won a gold medal in the 1956 Melbourne Games. In addition to this Olympic rowing pedigree, Hecht went on to become a marine fighter pilot, a college English professor, an audiobook pioneer, and later a long-haul truck driver. Believe it or not, it was the truck driving that, according to his late wife Anne-Marie Rousseau, he had dreamed of doing since he was still attending Beverly Hills High School at 16 years of age. Born to John, a stockbroker, and Clara Bell, a homemaker in Los Angeles in 1930, Heck's life began to form a beautiful symmetry at 16 when he developed that dream of truck driving. There's very little information from him directly on the matter, but many who express a love for long-haul driving say they love the solitude and serenity. The road is a constant calming presence, almost like a reel of the past and future laid out before you. A living metaphor for the passage of time that always places you at the center. Now, given his love of rowing and books, my bet is that he may have enjoyed this feeling as well. At a young age, Hecht expressed a desire to live and breathe the open road away from most of civilization and the bustle of the city, the businesses, all from those elements of human life that we feel so alienate us from nature. By recapturing our connection to the earth and the fresh air, we can ground ourselves in the present. I believe Hecht not only understood this, but he craved it. Yet it wasn't the right time for a trucking career, for him at least, in 1948. While some aspects of the profession greatly appealed to him, Heck's personality wouldn't have been able to stomach the long stretches with no physical activity and nothing but the sound of the wind to keep him company. His mind would wander too much. Like a sword needs a whetstone, a mind needs direction to keep it sharp, a task or a narrative to stimulate its imagination. So with trucking out as an option, for now, it was during his time as a student at Stanford that Hecht realized his other dream. Hecht was long, at six foot two inches tall, but lean, so the football coach at Stanford rejected him. Instead, he faithfully suggested that Hecht try out for a guy by the name of Gentleman Jim Beggs, the rowing coach. He must have been a natural talent. Hecht made the club and quickly formed an elite duo with a fellow student named James Pfeiffer. His partnership with Pfeiffer would become a friendship that lasted until after graduation when both men became Marine fighter pilots. With Olympic aspirations, the two maintained contact and continued to meet up for rowing practice as often as possible, despite being stationed some 700 miles apart. This culminated in their first success, qualification for the Helsinki Games in 1952. The event would end without a medal, however, a disappointment they would need to wait four years to remedy. Now, after discovering it, rowing was Heck's outlet for meditative serenity. It was a passion he pursued his entire life, from his Olympic successes to being instrumental in founding the rowing clubs at Menlo College and at the University of California, Irvine, also known as UCI. He coached, mentored, or consulted for the UCI rowing team in multiple stints, from the program's inception until the early 1990s. 
He also coached rowing at UCLA and Menlo College. In 1975, when the better part of his rowing career was over, he returned to his search for ways to continue learning and reading as much as possible. Now by then, Hecht was working as an investment banker in Los Angeles and commuting an hour each way. He was desperate to escape the hell that was a one-hour commute in L.A. traffic with nothing to listen to. So he first began by setting up a reel-to-reel tape recorder that would play books that were recorded for the blind. Hecht was happy with this solution temporarily. But as cassette tape players became more ubiquitous in the 70s, he spotted an opening. Unsatisfied with the kinds of books available on tape, he decided he would form his own company financed by the sale of his old Porsche. Books on Tape, as it became to be known, was a family business with a daughter from his first marriage describing how she and her siblings would help mom and dad duplicate tapes and get them shipped off to customers. Later, the company would become an industry leader in providing its products to schools and libraries around the country. Hecht certainly picked his audience. He made it a point to advertise in highbrow publications like literary reviews and the Wall Street Journal. He was targeting, in his words, quote, the absolute upper 5% of the socioeconomic structure, end quote. With help from his first wife, Hecht built up a company worth $20 million by 2001. Now, while other audiobook publishers were paying top dollar to license new titles and bestsellers, Books on Tape started by publishing books already in the public domain. Hecht valued classic literature and certainly would not accept abridged versions of any title. This commitment to a certain standard of artistic integrity attracted as many as 85,000 private customers in addition to the schools and libraries. Hecht also made it a point to hire voice actors with skill, but who would be unknown, again ensuring the quality of the product at the lowest cost point. In another fateful twist, Hecht's commitment to unabridged books led him to meet his last wife, Miss Rousseau, in 1991. She had responded to a competition that Books on Tape was sponsoring, asking customers to write a report on any book they had listened to. Miss Rousseau wrote about the 45 tape behemoth, War and Peace, by Leo Tolstoy. What she wrote was so impressive that Hecht would send her more books and request more reports. The two corresponded for years before meeting and eventually getting married. Rousseau would later say, quote, I cracked the code on how to get free books, end quote. Mr. Hecht, who apparently claimed that beauty and efficiency were the same thing, spent a lifetime pursuing this connection with nature and his humanity. UCI Rowing's obituary described him as, quote, erudite but rugged. He was always ready with a quote about life, whether from one of his mentors, master boat builder, George Pocock, or someone of great historic stature like Winston Churchill, end quote. I found one particularly illuminating exchange that he had had with the Wall Street Journal. When asked if unbound audiobooks cheapen literature, Hecht said, quote, listening is just returning literature to its original form before Gutenberg got into the act, end quote. Gutenberg, as in Johannes, was a creator, of course, of the printing press. Hecht displays a keen awareness of the history of storytelling. For the vast majority of human history, there was no literature at all. 
just people remembering stories and passing them down from one generation to the next, kind of like the Viking saga. Even after writing was invented and the first great pieces of literature were created, most people had no access to them and couldn't read them if they did. Only for the last 500 years or so have books been widely available, a minuscule fraction of humanity's hidden history of narrative fiction. So as Hecht points out, audiobooks are perhaps an even more primal form of entertainment than reading. The solitude of reading has its own benefits, but when you add a speaker, you turn the narrative experience into a social one. Instead of the voice in your head, another human being can engage your mind with fantastic tales in just the way most of your ancestors would have experienced. It also allows you to enjoy stories with other people present. Heck's daughter once told the Washington Post about how the two would always sit in the car after reaching their destination to finish the chapter of the book they were listening to. She points out the extraordinary irony. They were extending the commute that they once hated so much. It's the social experience of literature that Hecht returned to in 2001 after he sold his company, Books on Tape. At 71, he was a good bit past the age when he could row at a high level. Hecht tried consulting for Random House, the company that bought his business, for about a year, but didn't find enough interesting and engaging work. The company was no longer his responsibility. Hecht had his wife, millions of dollars in his pocket, and their golden years to look forward to together. More than this, he had created his own solution to the problem that once blocked his dreams all those years ago. The next step for Dewey Hecht was obvious. In his 70s, with the world at his fingertips, Hecht would spend the next seven years driving the open road as a long-haul truck driver fulfilling his boyhood dream. According to his wife Rousseau, he had never been happier than during this time. The couple would often travel together, meditating on the silence and the stories filling their ears. Hecht loved works of history, particularly about World War II and biographies of Winston Churchill. Yet I do not doubt that he was a lover of all literature and probably not a bad writer himself. Here is a quote from a letter he wrote to a classmate describing a training day on Lake Washington in 1956. Quote, on this particular day, the skies dried but did not clear, and there followed one of those enchanted spells when everything is held in abeyance, the fading of the sunlight, the onset of the rain, and the restraint of heavy wind, so that we rode fully aware of the transience of the moment. And I can feel once again the high exultation and the confident expectation of what the future held." End quote. Whether he knew it or not, I think there is a great chance that Hecht was referring to the future he would create for himself. A future where books were accessible on tape for a wide range of people who wanted them or needed them. A future where literature would be more accessible to everyone. Gutenberg introduced printing to Europe and undoubtedly revolutionized the way information and stories are shared. Perhaps, however, we might think of it as a large branch off the main trunk in the history of literature. 
where Gutenberg invited us into solitude to read and enjoy with nothing but the feeling of our own thoughts. Hecht sought to bring storytelling back to its social roots. He not only achieved this, but helped to improve the daily commutes of thousands of regular people across the country and can be held up as an example of an entrepreneur with a product that really means something to them and other people. The kinds of products that can change the world and us for the better. Now the audiobook industry is some $1.3 billion in size now, with 96% of that market being digital audiobooks here in 2022. But one of its key innovators and successful entrepreneurs is now probably rowing that celestial golden shore with a smile on his face as Dewey Hecht passed away earlier this year on February 10th, 2022 in Costa Mesa, California at 91 years of age. In 2018, a record-setting $100,000 was paid for a pair of vintage Levi's blue jeans at auction. The pants, made in 1888 when Levi Strauss and Company was just 17 years old, originally belonged to Solomon Warner, an American businessman who was living in the Arizona Territory when the Civil War broke out. The jeans, which he only wore a few times, had been carefully packed in a trunk and preserved by his family for 125 years. So why were these pants important enough for this kind of treatment? And why did they fetch such a high price at auction? To answer those questions, we need to learn more about the invention of riveted blue jeans. I'm Kelly Barner, the host of Dial P for Procurement here on Supply Chain Now. And I love history. Where did things come from? Who invented them? Why? Perhaps more importantly, what else was going on in the world at the time these innovations became reality? If you enjoy the unique blend of storytelling and business history that Scott Luton and I whip up for you on This Week in Business History, please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast and share a review. That will help others find us. With that said, let's get back to this week's story. The date is May 20th, 1873. Levi Strauss and Jacob Davis have been awarded a patent for improvement in fastening pocket openings. Although we think of Levi's today as being about jeans, the pants were actually referred to as waist overalls or overalls until the 1960s. But it wasn't the pants themselves that earned that patent. What actually put them and their company on the map were the rivets strategically placed to increase the durability of the garment when they were worn for hard labor. Levi Strauss owned a dry goods store in San Francisco, California. He was making a great living selling clothing, fabric, and basic food items like tea, sugar, and grain to people moving west. It was his family's business, 
and his West Coast offshoot was based upon the success of the business his brothers had built up in New York. There were already 117 dry goods stores in San Francisco. So why was Levi successful? Well, you've come to the right place if you've guessed supply chain. Many of the other stores had difficulty finding sources of goods to put on their shelves, but not Levi. He had a steady source of goods from his brothers on the East Coast. One of Strauss's regular customers was Jacob Davis, a Latvian-born tailor who was based in Reno, Nevada. Now, he relied upon Strauss's dry goods business to buy his fabric wholesale. One day, a woman in Reno walked into his shop, approached him, and asked him if he could try to reinforce her husband's pants so they wouldn't fall apart quite so easily. He experimented and came up with the idea of putting copper rivets at the stress points. The idea was a hit, and it was Jacob Davis's invention. The problem was, he did not have the $69 necessary to patent that innovation. And that is why he reached out to Strauss. Strauss put up the money, Davis provided the design, and both men were named on the patent. Davis would stitch a double yellow line on the back pocket of the pants to distinguish his product from the competition. Even with help from seamstresses working out of their homes, demand quickly outpaced what Davis could produce by hand. And so Strauss invested once again and built a factory to increase their output. Among their core customer groups were railroad workers, miners, and farmers. Now, one small misconception that persists is that Levi's, whether you call them jeans or overalls, became popular because they were worn during the gold rush. Now, the move of people west was certainly part of this whole timeline. However, jeans were not available during the gold rush. Denim wasn't used for work pants until 1870 and the gold rush ended in 1855. So there was a 15 year gap between the end of the gold rush and when denim came into common use for work pants. Now, although Jacob Davis's name isn't usually associated with conversations about modern jeans and denim, he actually spent the rest of his life working with Strauss. Davis moved his whole family from Reno to San Francisco and he ran the factory that Strauss built for the rest of his life. He passed away in 1908 and actually outlived Levi Strauss by six years. Strauss passed away in 1902 and left a $6 million estate behind, which included his company, and he left it to his four nephews. Today, that inheritance would be worth $140 million. Now, if the story ended there, it might seem like an overly smooth entrepreneurial journey, but we all know that's never the reality. Strauss and Davis faced plenty of challenges. One of the big ones took place in 1890. That is when the patent for their rivets expired. At that point, Branding was the best way for Levi Strauss to protect their market share. They also wanted to innovate, 
and one of the features they added that year is still in wide use today. Do you know the little tiny pocket inside the front pocket on your jeans? The one that's too small to use or even get your hand inside? Levi's added that pocket, which was meant for a pocket watch, in 1890. 1890 was also the year we got 501s. That is the Levi's product number that designates their copper riveted jeans. They originally also had 201s, which were less expensive and eventually phased out. The next challenge to hit the Levi Strauss company was much bigger than having a patent go into the public domain. It was the 1906 earthquake and fire that hit San Francisco. The Levi Strauss headquarters building was destroyed along with about 500 city blocks. Before we move forward into later innovations from Levi Strauss, let's pause for a little context. The patent for the riveted jeans was awarded in 1873 and it stayed in effect until 1890 by which time the jeans were wildly popular among working class people on the West Coast. So what else was going on in the country at the same time? Believe it or not, it was the Gilded Age. The Rockefellers, Vanderbilts, and Astors ruled polite society in New York and Newport between the end of the Civil War and the turn of the 20th century. If you can, Join me for a little experiment in imagination. Try to picture Caroline Astor, the grand dame of the Gilded Age, standing next to a railroad worker or a farmer in his Levi's waist overalls. It almost seems anachronistic, but they were happening at the same time. There's a Levi's ad from a decade or so ago that reads, this country was not built by men in suits. There's a reason we call those years the Gilded Age and not the Golden Age. The guilt was just on the surface. It was hardworking Americans that built this country and many of them did it in Levi's jeans. Of course, the other way we can take that quote is to say this country was not built by men in suits. I'm selfishly glad that jeans were the style that caught on rather than Gilded Age dresses. Can you imagine recording a podcast or typing on a laptop in one of those things? And societal changes bringing women into the workforce would not go unnoticed by the Levi Strauss company. If Manifest Destiny and the push west led men to pull on a pair of Levi's, World War I did the same for women. In 1918, Levi's unveiled women's Freedom Alls. Podcasts aren't the best place for visuals, so I'd encourage you to give these an image search, but here is my best attempt at a description. Freedom Alls were a two-piece suit. The pants were a bit baggy through the thigh and tightened near the ankle so they could be worn with tight buttoned ladies' boots. They were called trousers and this part is awful. They had a drop seat. Seriously, fashion faux pas. The top part of the suit was long and belted at the waist. 
Freedom Alls were available in what was called heavy khaki and also cotton. The cotton was available in blue, pink, and green. The tops were solid and the pants were striped in a color to match the top. Just as interesting as the prospect of wearing baggy striped pants was the company's approach to advertising. Things were opening up for women, but Levi Strauss Company took a novel approach to showing their pants in action. Ads did show women doing housework, which is what you would expect, but they also showed them doing some less expected things like hiking, driving cars, or out in nature taking pictures. As much as the imagery liberated their target customers, it was not enough to make them take leave of their senses and wear this outfit. Freedom Alls did not catch on. If you need a detail as to why, please reference my earlier comment about the drop seat. They were removed from the Levi Strauss product line about a year after they joined it. But the Levi Strauss company was not giving up on this new untapped market. In 1934, Levi's unveiled Lady Levi's. They were the first jeans designed in the spirit of what was made for men, but designed exclusively for women's bodies. In the 1930s, wearing pants was frowned upon for women, no matter what task you were doing. So it was an edgy move for Levi's. Fortunately, Lady Levi's did not involve stripes or a drop seat, and this time the garment caught on. By 1935, just two years after their introduction, Lady Levi's appeared in vogue, and that was that. Now, I started this week's episode by telling you about Solomon Warner, the Arizona businessman whose Levi's jeans were preserved so well for 125 years that they sold for around $100,000 in 2018. His story is emblematic of Americans at the time. The pants have a 44-inch waist and a 37-inch inseam, so Solomon was not a small man. He survived being shot by Apache Indians in 1870 and opened the first dry goods store in Tucson, Arizona, back when only about a thousand people lived there. The pants were preserved in large part because they were stored in a cedar chest, keeping away moths all that time. Once they were rediscovered by his great-great-grandson, Jock Taylor, a number of factors confirmed how old the pants really were. Even though most of Levi Strauss's company records were destroyed in the 1906 earthquake, a few dates are widely known and can be used to date these vintage garments. Levi's began covering its rivets with denim in 1937. So because the rivets on Solomon's jeans are exposed, we know they are older than that. Next test. Belt loops weren't introduced until 1922. Before that, there would have been buttons for attaching suspenders. These pants have the suspender buttons, so that places them before 1922. Best of all, they only have a single back pocket. Levi's didn't introduce that second back pocket until 1901, 
So these jeans are 19th century for sure. There's a lot of history in those pants, just like there's a lot of history that went into making of the Levi Strauss company. That's just about going to do it for today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed our show today, and I further hope that you can find your highest passions in life, just like Dewey Hecht was able to do. And hey, let us know what you think. We'd love to earn your review whenever and wherever you listen to this podcast. Of course, my co-host Kelly Barner and I hope that you'll subscribe to the show so you won't miss a single episode. We publish a new one every Tuesday. Now, with all that said, we wish you a wonderful week ahead. Hey, this is Scott Luton urging you to do good, to give forward, and to be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you next time right back here on This Week in Business History. Thanks, everybody.